I want you to make a big welcome today for our friend, our brother, Pastor Ross Parsley. Good morning, everybody. It's so uh, wonderful to be here, um, kind of back home in so many ways. Um, you know, when you, when you go away, um, there's a season where you, you're not sure how you should come back or how soon you should come back or how, what it's going to be like when you go back. Um, but what I've experienced over the last day, uh, day and a half, is... Um, an incredible warmth, and um, what I, I, I don't I don't know if I should call it pride, um, but I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased with what New Life Church is. I'm so pleased with what it's continuing to become. I'm so proud to be a son of this house, and and that's saying something because we've been through some stuff. And uh, what I what I've what I've been thinking about a lot is how. The heritage and history of a house really only is determined after a long period of time. It's, it comes uh, in, in, in time and relationships, and I think it's Pastor Brady who is fond of saying it takes a long time to become old friends. And I love that, and I feel like we're all old friends. And I feel like I, I'm uh, a, a son who is loved at this house. And I'm proud to be here. And I've, I haven't been to a conference that um, has so much conversation about difficult issues, about struggles within the church. I don't know. I was at a conference last week, and we were talking about how the... Um, have you ever seen the movie The Avengers? Yeah, The Avengers, great movie. Love it. Seen it twice, once so, uh, by myself with some guys and then to check on it for my kids. Then I went with my kids. And, uh, and so I was thinking about how the Avengers is a lot like, uh, if, you, if you look at the characters, you can see the church in that movie. You can see the church. What, you think about the, think about the movie. It's like, it's like they're trying to get along. They're all like heroes and they all have special powers. It's, there's all this power-packed uh, dynamic of, of the team, but they can't get along, and they're trying to figure things out. So, so you think about it, like, like who's the pastor, right? It's got to be Captain America. <laughs> Captain America is always in front. He's always right, and he's a little bossy. <laughs> Just saying. Then, you, then you, who's the worship leader? You can see, the Incredible Hulk. Why? Totally emotionally unstable. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get. Up, down, where is he? I don't know. Then you got the technical director, right? Tech guys, right? Who's that? Got to be Iron Man, right? <laughs> Sarcastic know-it-all. Not here. Kevin Morehouse is not a sarcastic know-it-all. That's right. That's right. And then, of course, you got um, the youth pastor. Who is that? It's got to be Thor. He's always breaking stuff and thinks he's a god. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But I, here's, 
Here's what I do. Here's what I really do think. What I love about this conference is we're talking about the issues of working together. We're having conversations about how difficult it can be to work together, and we're seeing it modeled before us uh, as we share together. And I just love, love, love that. So um, pleased to be here. Um, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter sixty-eight. Psalm chapter sixty-eight and um, verse four. We're going to start there, and a familiar passage maybe to, to most of you. Uh, I'm, I'm so grateful um, for the, the heritage and history of this family, and being planted in Austin has been an incredible experience, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. But I want to talk to you today about how we work together as a, a church, how we work together as a family, um, what kind of paradigm we should we should use when we're looking at our church. And um, let's pray before we read the scripture. Let's just ask the Lord to bless the reading of the scripture. Father, would you open our eyes? Would you unlock our ears? Would you help our hearts to receive what you want to say to us? What's going on in our location? What's going on in our church family? Would you teach us and train us how to see your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 68.4 says this. It says, sing to God, sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. Now, the psalmist here is encouraging us to essentially make a big deal out of God. We are encouraged here to sing over and over again. We're encouraged to, to sing about his name, to extol him and exalt him, to, to make a big deal out of him. That's just what we were doing here. It was so good. It was so wonderful. There was such a sweet presence of the Lord. I've never been with Corey in worship, but what a blessing. What a gift. Making a big deal out of God, that's that's kind of what we do in our, in our worship services. We're telling his story. We're articulating his name and what it means to us and what it means to us as his people. But here, as the psalmist is describing this, of course, he's saying, do this and extol him. This is his name. Now, why is he saying it? Is he saying it because it's so cool to see God riding on clouds? Now, make no mistake. I'm in Texas. I'm in the pretty part of Texas. All right? Texas got a lot of ugly. And I'm in the pretty part. And when I come back here to Colorado Springs and I look at Pikes Peak and I see the front range, it's incredible to see the beauty of creation. And there's no doubt when you see that, you just kind of want to break open in worship. Except for the dryness. What's up with the dryness? I forgot how dry it was here. But there's something so beautiful and it lifts my eyes to the Lord and I want to worship him. There's no doubt that creation can cause us to worship, but that's not what, that's not what, the, what the psalmist is leading up to here. Look what the next verse says. He says, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. John Egan wrote a fantastic song about this verse. I know Pastor Brady has shared on this passage many, many times, but it has become a revelation to me that 
where God's presence dwells, orphans get fathered. Where God's presence is, where God dwells, widows get defended, taken care of. What he, this psalmist is saying is what's worthy of our worship, what God, what, the reason God is worthy of our praise is because he's a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. He's a defender of weak and vulnerable people. Verse 6 says, God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. It's David who's articulating these ideas. And he's articulating something so meaningful and I think so deep to who we are as God's people. Because what he's saying is, is the work of God that is worthy of worship is the work of putting people in a family. The work of God that is worth us making a big deal out of is lonely, weak, and vulnerable people being placed in a family where they belong. Where they belong. It's interesting. God is wanting to be defined. I believe as you read the Psalms, as you read through the story of Scripture, He wants to be defined as the God of people who are weak, vulnerable, unable to sustain themselves. You could see it in this passage, actually. The rebellious, the people that think they have it figured out, the people that don't want to have anything to do with God, don't want to surrender, kind of want to stand on their own. God says they live in a land that has no provision. It has no nourishment. They live in a sun-scorched land. But the weak and the vulnerable and the defenseless and those people that surrender to God who are placed in his family, this is what we do. This is what God does. This is what our church is all about, is placing people in a family. God welcomes people into his family who are weak and vulnerable. Aren't you glad? Like, that makes me happy because at the end of the day, I am weak and vulnerable and I've never felt as weak or as vulnerable as launching out and trying to start something from nothing. Trying to start a church in Austin, Texas. I remember driving around the city wondering where we should meet, not knowing what to do. I mean, I, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. I was trying to meet people. I was trying to figure it out. I, I remember day after day driving down roads and just praying, God, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to meet? How can I do this? It was a very scary time. Being weak and vulnerable is something that God enjoys because what that allows him to do is express his great power his great grace in our lives. All of, the, all of the characters of the scripture, I think we can see their flaws and their failures and their, their, we're told their stories so that we can get this idea that the work of God is placing people in a family. Now, here's the problem. It's a mess dealing with all that. It's, it's, it's messy dealing with defenseless and weak and vulnerable people. It's, it's difficult it's a struggle. It's a bit messy. I, um, I, I think we're not as comfortable maybe as we should be with messes in our church. We're not real comfortable with um, 
going in and people saying, how you doing? And we give the obligatory, fine. I'm great. I'm blessed. I'm blessed and highly favored. I'm not sure that's doing our churches a, a service by, by just kind of putting on a mask and not letting people in. What's going on in our church needs to be unmasked. We need to see behind the scenes. We need to be aware of the defenseless nature of one another, the weak and vulnerable nature that we are living among a people that cannot make it unless God comes in and saves us. And, and, and people are starving for that kind of embrace. People of all kinds, colors, creeds, they're starving for this kind of belonging, I think. I mean, I have five kids, all right? I have five kids, and the oldest is 18. So he's in his last year of high school, and my youngest is five, and he's in his first year of kindergarten. Well, I hope it's not his first year of kindergarten. I hope it's his last year, too. But I th- his- So I got, I got an 18-year-old, and I got a five-year-old, and last year of school and first year of school, and my wife is a wreck. And so um, at our house, it, it gets a little messy. I, I had an, a situation just um, a while back uh, on a Saturday night, and I'm, you know, ready to, to go on Sunday morning, and we're going to, you know, I'm, I'm doing two services, and, and we're meeting in the movie theater, uh, which is where we planted the church. And, and so Saturday night, 1 o'clock, I hear moaning down the hallway. I hear a, a moaning coming from my two littlest boys' rooms. They were five and three at the time. And, uh, and so... I lay real still, hoping that it'll stop. (laughs) Or hoping my wife will hear it and get up instead of me. (laughs) The moaning kind of turns to a cry, so I get up and I go down the hallway. And as I come in the room, I flip on the light. And uh, my oldest, uh, or five-year-old, I got five-year-old and three-year-old in there on bunk beds, and the five-year-old's on the top bunk, and he's holding his stomach. He said, Dad, my stomach really hurts. And as I move towards him, he throws up the biggest throw-up I've ever seen a five-year-old do. And he just threw, it was like an arc off the top of the bunk, and it just like, like a bomb went off. I felt spray on my face. It was so disgusting. I was like trying to get out of the way. And then Owen is on the bottom bunk and he's like, my eyes, my eyes, Ethan threw up in my eye. (sighs) It's one o'clock in the morning. I'm getting up the next morning. I have to deliver a message to our church. I'm scrubbing nasty carpets in the middle of the night and the boys are in the bathtub at 1.30 in the morning. We spend the next hour trying to fix, trying to clean that up. And and I'm there in the middle of the night doing this. Isn't this part of the work of a family? I mean, isn't, isn't that just part of it? Isn't that the, aren't those the things that make memories? Aren't those the things that kind of, I'm not saying they're all good memories. Aren't these the kinds of things that define us, the willingness to clean each other's throw up up? Throw up, up. Our family is difficult to manage sometimes. Five people sharing two and a half baths. It's, it can be a mess. I tend to think that what we're doing on Sunday mornings 
needs to reflect more of family culture. More family culture in order to help people know what this is really about. You know, we clean up our house when we invite people over for dinner, right? We clean it up real good. We scrub the toilets. So do you, right? You clean it up because you invite people over and you don't want, to, you don't want them to see how, they, how you really live. I kind of feel like this is what Sunday morning should be, right? We clean it up a little bit, right? Because there's no need to show people our dirty laundry on the first day they're there. But the truth is, if we can see our church like a family, then we'll see that there's not only privileges to belonging to the family, but also responsibilities. And one of the challenges, I think, of our current culture is that we're seeing it often through the lens of a consumer model. The, the, cons, listen, let's face it. The consumer culture we live in, we're bombarded by ads and by marketing everywhere we go, everywhere from your phone to your computer to your television. I mean, it's everywhere. And so it is not a mystery that it might seep into the life of our church. You've got a consumer culture and people come to your church thinking through a consumer lens and there's something you're going to have to do to break that down because it's automatic. I, I, I really believe that there's two twin idols of consumer culture and they are these two things. You can write them down. It's choice and convenience. Choice and convenience. One of the things that's happened in worship culture over the last 10 or 15 years is we've decided to give people choices about their worship experience. And... Uh, and this isn't, on the face of it, the worst thing in the world. It's not like anybody's going to hell. Maybe. Uh, it depends on how well they belong. It depends on how well they understand who Jesus is and how he controls their life, which is what we're all about in our church. We're trying to teach people this. So we've got to do things that teach people that choice and convenience is not the first thing. Think of what Jesus said. He said, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, the instrument of death, and follow me. It's hard to offer endless choices and conveniences while telling people they need to carry an instrument of death. Much, many, many of, much of our church culture has been influenced by corporate culture. It's corporate culture. You know, you know what the two, the two big values of a corporate culture, in other, in other words, a, a, a business culture. You know, church is not a business, right? It, there's no doubt that we have the bottom line. We've got to make sure that we can pay our bills. We've got to be good stewards of everything God gave us. But that's not, that's not the primary thing we're doing here. We're not making widgets. We're not, making, we're, not, we're not here to make money. We're here to invest in people and to build relationships and make disciples. There's nothing else. There's nothing else. It's, that's all we're doing. So corporate culture, you know what the two highest values are? Production and performance. Make sure you produce the product, make sure it's good, and then make sure that the, the stocks are performing. Make sure that it's working. And I just think we've got to peel it back a little bit. We've got to, we've got to, we've got to ask ourselves, have we become consumed by corporate culture in our church? Is that the first thing people notice? Is that the, and, and, and I'm not, not, certainly not saying we can't have structure. We've got to have structure. I think there's some tremendous classes on that in this, in this conference. 
But that we can't lead with consumer and we can't lead with corporate. We've got to lead with something else. And most people would not say, oh, yeah, our church, man, we're consumer culture all the way. It's awesome. Nobody says that. Nobody wants to be consumer culture. It just seeps in. We've got to replace it with something. What is that? What, do you, what, what, do you, what can you replace it with? You've got to replace it with a new paradigm. And I think, I believe the scriptures show us and teach us that one of the great illustrations, one of the great analogies, one of the great themes of the Bible is all about family. How a family works. I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever been church shopping. Church shopping, it's like a, a thing that eluded me. I was born on Saturday and in church on Sunday. So I didn't get to choose. My dad was a pastor. So I, I lived all my life in churches chosen for me. But I've heard that this church shopping phenomenon is awful. Drive into the parking lot. You're trying to pump up the family. This could be it, you say to them. This could be the church. And then you go through the front doors, and the front doors open, and there they are, Walmart greeters. Hi. 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 You're looking for a sign. Do I belong here somewhere? God, show me a sign. Show me something. And you wander through the lobby and then to the children's area, and you drop your daughter off, and she's like, no, don't send me in there. Finally, you get her settled, and you're looking around, and you're thinking to yourself, maybe a caramel macchiato will help. Do they have a coffee bar? Because that's really important in a church. (laughs) Then you're wandering through, and you're worshiping God in in the midst of everything. You kind of got one eye open, one eye closed, you know, and you're kind of watching what's going on. You listen to the sermon like a seminary theologian. Finally, the final prayer is said, and you walk to get your daughter. You get out of the doors of the, of the church, and you walk in the parking lot. You get in your car. You look at your spouse. You're like, who was that it? It's completely wrong-headed. It's not right. It doesn't work. It's awkward. It's foreign. It should be foreign to us. You know the reason? Here's the reason. You can write it down. No one gets to choose their own family. Nobody gets to choose their own family. Adopted kids don't get to choose their parents. Parents choose those kids. Here's the thing. You're born into the family that you get. You know your family. (laughs) Would you choose them? (laughs) No, almost no one would choose their own family. Because they're so weird. They got so many hang-ups. And you, you want a different family. This doesn't work in church life. It should not be who, how we choose our churches. There's something else that we, should, that we should choose. And it is choosing to trust God to place us in a family. This is the work of God. The work of God is placing people, letting people be born into a family. Listen, I, don't, I think choosing a church and, and, and joining a church should be much more like a spiritual birthing process than we're willing to admit. What did, what did Nicodemus say to Jesus in John chapter 3? He came to him and he said, you're the, you're, we, I believe you are from God, but I don't understand how this works. And Jesus said, 
you're a teacher in Israel? You're the expert. You should know exactly how this works. And Jesus responded to him and said, you must be born again. You must be born into the kingdom. You can't just be, you can't just choose. You can't just receive. You can't just get what you want out of it. You're born into it. And Nicodemus actually said, what? How can I enter again into my mother's womb? (laughs) Ew. (laughs) Jesus said, you got to be born of water and of the spirit. I think something happens when we see our church as a spiritual family. The church is a spiritual family. Look at, think about, think about the original design. Genesis 1, Adam and Eve, God puts them in the garden, and what happens? He says, be fruitful and multiply. He, he starts with a family. He chooses the family of Noah to save them from the flood and to start again. He chooses Abraham to begin the long journey of expressing his love and desire for the nations. He chooses Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The 12 tribes are just an extension of the family of Jacob and this family that God's choosing to reveal himself through all of history and scripture. Think about the marriage analogies and the family analogies in the Old Testament. Think of God talking to his people through his prophets as a jilted lover. As a, as, a, as, a, as a married um, husband to this wandering wife. He's talking about this love of a family. He's talking, he's, he's giving us this expression, this idea. He sends God's son, right? He sends Jesus into the world as a baby. Weak, thank you, perfectly timed. <laughs> Weak, vulnerable, defenseless. He's saying something to us about how we should think, how we should understand who we are. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. They came to him and said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And what did he say? Oh, great CEO in heaven. (laughs) He, He could have said, oh, ruler of all the universe, master of the universe. No, he didn't say that. He could have said it because that's true, actually. What he said was, when you pray, say, our Father. Our Father. Think about Jesus was asked, he said, hey, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are outside waiting for you. And he said, who are my mother and brothers? Who are they? Except those who do the will of God, those who believe and follow the, the truth. Jesus chooses two sets of brothers to be part of the 12 disciples. I don't know if you have any brothers or not, but they fight a lot. Jesus was doing something when he did that. He was saying something. The Apostle Paul calls Timothy Timothy a true son in the faith. We're called God's children all through the scripture. Jesus said, if you want to be like, if you want to be, you understand what the kingdom of heaven is like, you've got to be like little kids. God's story is a family story. The Bible is a family book. Every believer must be part of a spiritual family. I think you've got to teach your church this. You've got to teach them. And every believer, they have to be a member of a spiritual family. And if you are not a member of a spiritual family, if you can't call yourself a 
kid in the house of God, a, a, a brother, a sister, an uncle, an aunt, a father, if you can't find your place to belong, then guess what? You are an orphan. You are an orphan. Every month I see people in Austin and they come to our church and we've grown at a crazy, ridiculous rate. Too fast probably for us to be healthy. But I see them. They're lost. They're wandering around. They, 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 don't, they don't know where they belong. They've, they've, they've traveled to this church or that church or they have a history from the Catholic church or this denominational church and they, they know something about God. I mean, listen, Austin, okay, the town motto is keep Austin weird. Everybody's spiritual in Austin. Everybody is in touch with some kind of spiritual dynamic, but they're orphans longing to belong somewhere. And I see it over and over again. Think about this. Families are God's original design for discipleship. Think about, think about discipling a person. How do you disciple a person? Well, you have to be around them a lot. Families have constant contact. Think about the scene. Constant contact. Consistent modeling. Consistent modeling. Everybody knows, everybody knows that parents, right, no kid does what their parents tell them to do. They only do what their parents do. It's the same in discipling. Instant feedback, growth measurements. Do you remember when you were growing up and the, on the doorpost you'd measure the kids and put the little mark there of what age they were? Hey, one of our problems in church life, I know at one chapel, and I think in American model of church, is that we don't have any measurement systems for how people are growing in the family. We count, we count heads. We count money. <laughs> We got to develop more measurement systems so that we understand whether or not they're part of the family or not. Whether they're sons and daughters, whether they're connecting, learning. Listen, it is in the family where you learn how to fight first. You, your first lessons on injustice happen at two years old. When your baby brother grabs your toy, your first lessons on selfishness, forgiveness, Mercy are all supposed to be learned in the family. What's the problem? What is the problem? Our families are broken in America. Statistically, 50% of you are scarred by the pain of divorce. Our families end up being dysfunctional, and so it's no mystery why our churches would sort of reflect that. But here's the thing. It is the church who must recover and restore the idea of what a healthy family looks like. we got to teach people what it looks like, and they can only learn it in one place, in God's family. And if you're just serving stuff in consumer style, and people are not being faced with the challenge of belonging to a family or the chores that are involved in belonging to a family or the connectedness that is required in discipling a family, then you're not helping them. They're continuing in their dysfunction. And they see you through the lens of their broken family. They see you as a pastor through the lens of their broken family. We live in a divorce culture and we are struggling, I think, to recapture what it's like to live in a family. But we need the kind of people who will defend one another. Imagine what you, who will fight fair with each other. Most people, when they fight in a church, 
then they leave. We don't know how to fight and stay. We got to teach people how to do that. One of the things that I am blessed by is my experience in my experience at New Life in being able to receive the blessing of being sent. I didn't understand that blessing before Brady came to New Life Church and began to talk about it, began to articulate it. And then I lived it. Make no mistake, I went to his office in late January of 2009 with trepidation, with fear, with concern, because I was going to tell him what was deep in my heart. That I thought, I think God's allowing me I think he wants me, and I think I want to. Here's the, here's the real challenge. The real challenge of church planting, and when, you're, when you belong to a place for a long time, is that you want to go, and what the other person will feel because you want to leave. That's the challenge. And I went with fear into that office, and he handled it perfectly, like a dad who was not, who was not um, discouraged or uh, threatened. Now, I know that behind the scenes, he was wrestling with what must be done around New Life Church. And having a guy leave too early is not that great. But what he did when he walked me through that process was such an incredible blessing. And it has shown me that I belong to a family where I'm invited back. Where I, 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 tell, I tell every new member meeting, when I have a new member meeting and I'm sitting there with people who are coming to our church and I say, hey, you know what? You belong to a family and you don't even know it yet. You have people who've been praying for you for years and you don't even know it yet. You have an extended family because I am not an orphan. I was sent here. I am not an orphan. I didn't start this church because I was unhappy with something else or I was frustrated. I came because I'm part of a family and we're extending the family reach. See, okay, so listen, this paradigm has to be embraced. So quickly, final, final three big points. When our church functions like a family, here's what you get. When your church functions like a family, here's what happens. Number one, we grow in maturity. We grow in maturity. We get to actually grow. Ephesians 4.15, it says, Speaking the truth in love, we will grow into him who is the head. We will grow to become the mature body of he who is the head, Jesus Christ. What this indicates to us, though, is we got to be willing to be in a family where we speak the truth in love. Some people, they love the truth, man. Actually, they emphasize the truth at the expense of love. You know what happens when you emphasize the truth at the expense of love? You're like, well, don't you know Jesus said it's the truth that will set you free? Man, let me give you some truth right now. Man, I'm going to wind up right now, and I'm going to give you some truth. Brother, you know I love you, but I'm going to give you some truth. Boom. Here's some more truth. Boom. Those churches that focus on truth at the expense of love become legalistic and mean. They put heavy burdens on people. Others, other churches is all about the love. Oh, it's just about the love, man. Just love. We just love everybody. We just love people. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. We just love you. And they never get around to telling the truth. Those churches that emphasize love at the expense of truth, they, they raise weak and immature believers. Weak and immature believers, because they never deal with the, the, the substance. 
something happens when you realize that you belong to a family and you fight with one another, you wrestle through issues, you are willing to, you're willing to open up your heart to somebody who's going to speak the difficult truth. And let me tell you, all the hard work, all the hard work, all the hard work is in creating an atmosphere of love where people don't doubt your motives. I'm only two years in and I'm still convincing people that I'm, I have good motives. They're still not sure. something really powerful about that. We get to grow in maturity when we treat one another like family. Parents get to grow and children get to grow. Think about this, okay? We all think that it's the parents' job to make children adults, but really, what it is, it's the children who make the parents adults. If your church sees yourselves like a family, you know that it is caring for those who are weak and vulnerable among you that actually causes maturity and growth in you. You catch that? The baby is the hardest one to take care of. Because all he does is poop and cry and eat. (laughs) I've had five of them and I'm not having any more. Number two. Number two, we create a culture. If, we, if the church functions like a family, we create a culture of respect and relevance. Respect and relevance. Psalm 145.4 says, One generation will commend your works to another. One generation will commend your works to another. I think in America we've become really good at declaring God's works to our demographic group. And often we separate people into these styles of worship and then we send the kids to the kids' table and the adults can be at their own table with no chaos and no problem. What are we giving up when we do that? We're giving up teaching each other how to lay down our lives. We're giving up love. We're giving up respect for those who came before us. We're giving up learning about the history and heritage. There's nothing quite like a 15-year-old sitting at a table at Thanksgiving staring strangely at his grandpa as grandpa tells a story that's going on and on way too long, dentures clicking. Here's my question. How is a young person going to understand or appreciate any heritage and history if he never has to spend any time with someone who's older than him? Hey, how is a grandpa going to feel the vibrancy and energy of what God's doing in the next generation unless he spends some time with them? Segmenting and separating is not a family culture. That's a consumer culture. So imagine this. Imagine the kind of church where you could use the wisdom and experience and the resources of age. All right? You could put those people and you could somehow blend them. You could overlap them. You could put them in situations where they were interacting with young people who have both um, strength, enthusiasm, and innovation. It's always the young people who innovate. If a church has young people and old people, guess what? They get wisdom and innovation. So many of our churches, they lose their way because they've kind of gone past the point of no return and now it's just full of old people and they don't know what to do. What should we do? Let's start a young people service. And then, boom, they're off to consumer-driven church. 
If we treat one another like family, we get a culture of respect. We respect what God's doing in the younger generation. We respect what God's done before us, and we create relevance. We're always going to be relevant. Last point. Three, we offer a place to belong. When a church functions like a family, we offer a true place to belong. Now, here's what I mean by this. I think our churches have gotten too used to a process where people say, all right, you come to my church and I want you to believe like I want you to believe. I want you to believe the things that I believe first. And then I want you to become like me. And then, I, then you can belong. Believe first, then become, then, then belong to our gathering. This is not how families work. The babies don't even know how to believe. They're born into your family. And guess what? You have to teach them. You have to train them. But they belong first. My baby's born into my family. They belong to me. There is nothing quite like holding a baby in your arms and realizing this is yours. God gave you this to you. And he belongs to your family. And then you teach him and he starts believing like you do. He starts understanding the values of this household and this family. And finally, he becomes the man that he's supposed to be. That's what's happening to Zachary, my oldest, 18 years old. He's been trained, but he's always belonged to our family. He's started to believe as he, as he was trained, and then finally he's becoming the man that I'm so proud of. There's nothing like that process. John 13, 35, you know what it says? Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for who? For the poor? For other people? If you have love for each other, learn how to develop a family culture and people are starving for it. It's one of the greatest challenges of our culture is people starving to belong to something. Don't require them to jump all these hurdles to get in. Let them belong to your family. Welcome them to the table. You know what? We do communion every week and every week I have to say, I have to give this caveat. I say, look, we want you to come to the table. This is not about church membership. You don't have to be a member of this church to receive at the table with us. We want you to come to the table. But here's what, who the table is for. is those who are willing to come and meet Jesus. Because Jesus set this table for you. There's something powerful about that idea. And that's what we're going to enter into now in just a moment with my good friend, my co-laborer in Christ that I'm so proud of, Glenn Packiam. But let me just take a moment and pray over you about this family thing. Because we don't even know that we're doing it half the time. We don't even know we're, we're sucked into a consumer or corporate culture. We just think this is how it's supposed to work. So, Father, would you help every person who is here, who's in this room, that belongs to a family of believers that's trying to be your people, trying to become the people of God that gather together, would you help us to discover the, the ideas, the guidelines, the principles, the themes of the scripture that help us become a family, that help us do what you've called us to do, to see people born into this family over and over again. Teach us how to help people belong and then begin to believe with us and then to become who you want them to be. Give us strength to do this and wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.